This is episode two, Why Agriculture Matters. Welcome to Why Blank Matters, where we explore why small topics have big impacts. I'm your host, Amber Williams. And I'm your host, Kendra Clark. Hey, Amber. Yeah? What do you get if you cross an angry sheep and a moody cow? I don't know. What do you get? An animal that's in a bad mood. (laughs) That's a bad joke. (laughs) (laughs) That it is. (laughs) So why do cows have hooves instead of feet? I don't know, Amber. Why? Because they lack toes. So today we're talking about agriculture. Which I know on the surface may not sound like the most exciting of topics but what you'll learn is agriculture actually involves a lot of things you never even realized so it's kind of hard to narrow down all of the things that agriculture is so that can be a series of things uh, from forestation to farm animals and farmland but it's kind of hard to define so we're using the usda website to break down all the different sections that they have and so they have everything from the agricultural marketing service to the agricultural research service animal and plant health inspection Uh, they do forestation they do all the nutrition labels which is where the majority of the budget for the usda actually goes and that also includes food stamps snap um, WIC, all of those nutritional programming um, that's provided through social services And they also have the Foreign Agriculture Service, which works to improve foreign market access for U.S. products. They have the National Agricultural Library. Not quite sure what that is. Agriculture is a wide topic. So this is one of those topics that we're not going to be able to do justice in, in the amount of time of this episode. But we found that it was so broad and so interesting, we had to cover it. So And they also have like rural development and risk management. There's a lot. And, and really what we kind of wanted to focus on, because it is such a broad topic, is how specifically agriculture affects the economy, because um, it has such a larger impact than we realize. And part of that is because agriculture is actually the largest employer in the world. So that if you look at employment around the entire world, agriculture makes up the largest population of workers. And we'll get to that later in the episode, too, what, what that looks like. Um, one thing that was really interesting, uh, there's a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel um, that I discovered several years ago through a PBS documentary. Um, and one of the things that he really talked about is how agriculture helped determine which civilizations kind of flourished and which ones didn't. Because um, the first agriculture that we've discovered occurred between 12,000 to 23,000 years ago. He also wrote the book Collapse. Uh, Jared Diamond wrote both of those books. And he also talks about how th- there's several things in the society that might make it fall apart. And poor agriculture and climate change and war and different uh, neighboring countries can contribute to uh, the collapse of a society. Specifically, how agriculture kind of helped determine is roughly around 8500 BC, there was a climate change within the world, and it made different plants and animals more scarce, which made hunting and gathering a less, I guess, profitable or successful venture. Um, So there are certain civilizations that started domesticating plants and planting them 
Um, and civilizations who did that all of a sudden had more free time on their hand because hunting and gathering takes a lot of time. It takes up most of what you're doing throughout the day. But if you're just having things grow or you're having animals that are just there domesticated, that opens up time for other things, and such as developing specialized skills like metalworking, politics, and trade. And, and that also kind of built the modern family because now with agriculture people are more stationary and agriculture led up to the development of like you said politics um but but people were able to have children much faster because they weren't hunting and gathering so usually they'd have to wait three or four years in between having a child but agriculture made it so families could have children one after the other and that's kind of when the big families became popular because they had a household and they could make all these little workers around the farm and have little bo peeps and uh is there like a male farmer figure that i <laughs> probably <laughs> <laughs> so going next to the agricultural revolution so historians often label the first agricultural revolution in like 10,000 bc and this was a period of the transition of the hunting and gathering society based to stationary farming. And later during the 18th century, another agricultural revolution took place in Europe and it shifted the techniques of the past. This really started in the 18th and 19th century in Europe. This also was the timeline of a lot of major inventions for agriculture. And you need a strong agriculture to have an industrial uh, economy as well. And the other, the important part about the 18th century revolution was that there was more availability to farmland and favorable farming climate. So more livestock, more crops, and a more consistent climate to work with. Um, and, and farmers have always been considered important in society, but it particularly came of notice during the Great Depression. Um, and that's when the U.S. legislature actually passed the first farm bill to help address the needs of American farmers because they found out that because they recognized that the needs of farmers and those of poor Americans were deeply intertwined. Um, and so they needed to make sure that they were addressing the widespread hunger and poverty that was going on during that time. So World War II was also an interesting time for agriculture, not just in the United States, but across the world. And we really kind of came into this topic because I was reading the book China's Economy, and they were talking about agriculture. And so if you're not familiar with Chinese history, uh, Mao Zedong was a dictator. <laughs> he took away the land from the farmers and gave it to the government. And during that time, uh, he was also trying to kill off all the sparrows and the rats and all the vermin. And that had a devastating effect on the land and how it was managed. So part of this was they were killing off the vermin and things that are important for the growth of the agriculture, but they were also taking the land away from the farmers. And so if farmers were caught stealing food from their own lands, they would have they would be executed by death. So in the 1980s, after Mao had passed, I think it was 1983, um, there was essentially another, like an agricultural revolution of its own, and they revolted against the Chinese government to get back farming to the families instead of government-controlled farming. And so that has hindered China's economy significantly, according to the book China's Economy, which is written by Arthur Kober, and he's the director of Dragonomics, an independent global economic research firm and editor to China Economic Quarterly in Beijing. And so he recognized that for a society to grow, they need 
three factors and he calls this the developmental state and this oh no i'm sorry this was actually coined by robert wade in 1988 and there's three pillars for the developmental states and that's for a society to grow from nothing into something that can really prosper that consists of land reform export manufacturing and financial repression so china did not embody this at all and so can you guess what countries did uh, have implement this after World War II. Which countries, Amber? Well, they were very they were very poor. So Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, and they had all uh, had a massive boom after World War II because they followed this pattern. And so, as of 1979, Japan was the second largest economy, and that's because they really fixed their agricultural efforts to increase their manufacturing efforts. So you can't have that strong manufacturing society without the agriculture to initially start it off. So China had fallen far behind, not on established Western powers in technological terms, but to several of its Eastern Asian countries. Um, So that really gets us into most of what we're going to be talking today is about um, local farms versus more industrialized farms. And a lot of the research we're going to be talking about is focused specifically on the U.S., but it's important to know that research in multiple studies have shown uh, many of these same impacts. Um, There have been studies done in Australia, India, Canada. So this is like a universal idea, uh, but most of our facts are going to really focus on the U.S. The difference, so there is a difference between agricultural producers and agricultural exporters. And China and India are featured as top producers, but they don't export as much as other countries like the U.S. And a big part of that really comes down to food security and how that plays into national security. Because if you don't have enough food for your citizens, you're going to have a crisis on your hands. So when it comes to production, there's also how much a country exports and and produces but then there's also um there might be high dollar uh, production as well and so that's something to keep in mind so they might be exporting a lot but they might not be getting a lot of money back so if we look at who exports the most in any given area the u.s is way ahead in corn production they are responsible for about 50 percent of the world's corn which brings in like nine billion dollars china is the largest fish exporter and they produce uh, 9.2 percent of the world's fish market and that's about six billion dollars indonesia is palm oil and they produce 51 percent thailand is rice Uh, the u.s is soybeans and wheat and both of those wheat is 5.4 billion and soybeans is 16 billion i didn't know there could be so much money with soybeans as a whole like it's just hard to comprehend well there's a lot of money in agriculture as a whole yes but that's ironic because farming prices are going up but farmers are getting less money as a whole so and we'll get into that later too one fun fact about producers so we're recording this in savannah georgia and Georgia is known as the peach state. Um, that's what they're known for. But what's interesting is they actually are not the top producer of peaches in the really? U.S. They're actually ranked number four. Really? Who comes before Georgia? Uh, California is number one. That makes sense. Um, I know South Carolina is in there. And I can't remember what the third the, the third state is. But uh, yeah, Georgia's not even the top producer of, Georgia, of peaches. But Dang. we're still the peach state. Dang, that peach emoji belongs to California now. But they also probably get like avocados and almonds and 
I think those are all produced in California as yeah, well. I think California produces everything. <laughs> <laughs> Except corn. <laughs> they don't produce corn in California? I don't know. Okay. I just think that is like a Midwest thing. It does seem like a Midwest thing. I mean, I always saw it growing up in Ohio, but I never saw cornfields in California, but I've spent like a few days in California. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, my dad and I took a road trip coming from South Dakota to Tennessee. Okay. And all we saw for however many hours that was was corn and uh, let's just say I don't really eat a lot of corn since <laughs> did you go to the corn palace no <laughs> there's a corn palace and I think I, I don't remember if I've been to it once or twice but yeah so I feel like uh, that's definitely a midwestern thing so but to get back on topic um <laughs> when it comes to agriculture specifically in the U.S. it is actually it makes up nearly five percent of our GDP um, which can, and they contribute roughly $992 billion. Um, food and agriculture also employs 14% of the United States workforce, and consumers spend over $1 trillion annually on food that is made by U.S. farmers and ranchers. Interesting. So as far as like the top exporters and the money that it brings in for countries as a whole, uh, the U.S. exports $118 billion. Uh, the Netherlands... Uh, comes in second with 79 billion. Germany is 70 billion and France is 68 billion and Brazil is 50, 55.4 billion. So um, Kendra and I have both been to the Netherlands at different times, but they're the top exporter of high value flowers and they produce two thirds of the world's tomatoes. I do love tomatoes. <laughs> I think they also produce peppers as well. No, the leading supplier of tomatoes and chilies. So there's a lot of complicated things that allow a country to be successful in agriculture. And some of that is the climate, some of that is the soil, but also the roads, the road infrastructure and irrigation. So if a country is strong in irrigation and road infrastructure, they're inherently going to be a lot stronger in exporting and importing those goods. And so that's one of the contributing factors. And if a country is successful in agriculture, but that doesn't take into account climate and, and all of that fun stuff. So that's incredibly complicated and not something we can cram in into this podcast. <laughs> but we wanted to kind of touch base and just let you know of the wealth of rabbit holes you can dig into if you want further information. So when it comes to local farms versus more industrialized farms, um, multiple studies have shown that economies do better when farms stay with local people. And part of that is because is because local farms are going to put that money back into the economy at that local level. Um, and this is called the local multiplier effect. Every time money changes hands within a community, it boosts its income and economy activity and fuels job creation. And local business is more likely to respend dollars locally versus sending that money back to another corporation, city, corporation, country, whatever. Um, and this is and this is concerning because um, mid-sized farms are actually decreasing, and mm -hmm. your more bigger industrialized farmers are becoming more and more dominant currently industrial farms um so currently six percent of farms produce 75 percent of our agricultural products um, and that's a that's a huge issue in the 2007 census they reported that there was a loss of 80,000 mid-sized family farms and 
the predictions were that that would continue to happen, and within a decade, they could completely disappear. We're going to go back to the book uh, Collapse by Jared Diamond. He, in the first chapter, he talks about Montana, and he breaks down why it's, it's struggling. And a big factor of this is the farming costs have gone up, and farmers are still making about the same money that they made, I think, in the 80s. And so they're putting all this new money into the technology, and it's getting more and more pricey, but they're getting the technology to streamline it, but they're not making the profits that they need. So it's more financially rewarding for them to essentially sell the land rather than keep that land within the family and, and keep farming off of it. So the, now they have like all these housing developments because they're selling the land. And part of this too is because the median age of the U.S. farmer is 55 and many of them are getting close to retirement and they don't have people within their family who are willing to carry on the farming activity they have on their land. So that does make it more, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Appealing to sell. Yes. Um, and the National Young Farmers Coalition expects that two-thirds of the nation's farmland will probably change hands within the next few decades. And honestly, what is happening is a lot of those lands are even being sold to foreign investors. Uh, roughly 30 million acres of U.S. farmland is actually held by foreign investors Wow. And that number has doubled in the past two decades. Now, some states have laws prohibiting that. Is that correct? Yes. So there's no federal restrictions as to how much land a foreign entity can buy. But some states do have their own restrictions. Um, but what happens is that just means those investors go to the states that have the least restrictions, such as Texas and Ohio. I wonder if they are using that land to reproduce agriculture and or if it's going to be used for other purposes. So some of these lands are being used for agricultural purposes, uh, but that is one of the concerns, is one that once that land is bought by foreign investors, will that land ever be returned back to the American people? But also, for every acre of land that is developed into something different, that's one less acre of land of food that we have to hmm. um, feed people. <laughs> so is it considered a U.S. import? Or export if it's from, like, China in Ohio or something? That is a good question that I, I don't know the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, who, who actually is considered responsible for exporting that food? Because it's still leaving the U.S. If it, if it leaves here. Or they're just charging Americans for, uh, it, in theory, this is all hypothetical. And, and when we're talking about the local aspect, uh, there was one study that showed that the Southeast Minnesota farmers were spending about $400 million on farm inputs. Um, so farm inputs are gonna be your seed, your equipment, your manure, anything they need to um, complete farming. Um, and they were spending that money outside of their region. And the consumers were spending about $400 million on food outside of their region. And what they found is that if they shifted even 15% of that money to their local area, it would actually generate $45 million in new income for that community. Um, hmm. So that goes back to why having local farms is so important in helping to boost the economy, specifically of rural areas that are already struggling um, from loss of other industries. Interesting. Willie Nelson is hugely responsible for, he's the founder of farm farmaid.org and, and the festivals that go along with that so he's a huge advocate for small town farming right the, the family farming 
yes, he, he's a big uh, proponent for family farming. Um, and he was actually even put into the Agricultural Hall of Fame, which I didn't know existed until recently. Yeah, we just found that out yesterday. And you know who the first uh, person nominated to the uh, Agricultural Hall of Fame is? No. George Washington. So for he, he was recognized for his efforts with soil erosion around Mount Vernon. Um, and I think that was after his presidency, but I don't remember exactly what the details were. But he was the first uh, Hall of Fame for agriculture. The two most recent people that have been added in are Forrest Selby, um, who was an individual who helped farmers obtain equipment after they returned from World War II. Um, so what he did was he set up a finance department to borrow money from banks and in turn lend it to veterans who needed farm equipment. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of different loans available specifically for farmers. Um, that's not something we dove into, but there's um, crop insurance and and it's it's really, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot here. <laughs> yeah. But, but part of that is why farmers are struggling. So uh, the industry's debt-to-income ratio is the highest it's been since the 1980s. And it's forecast for 2019 to be 13.9%. And that ratio has increased every year for the last seven years. And it's the highest level in 20 years. And um, all these loans are very important because farmers rely on them because they're planting seeds months ahead of time of when their product is actually going to be available. So they use the loans to set up the seeds so they can re- hopefully repay it with the profits they get from their crops. And farmers take on a lot of debt. I, I can't think of another industry where the producers take on so much debt in a family setting, potentially. But um yeah, I, I didn't realize that until maybe like a year ago, how much debt they, they can take on just to keep continuing the family farms. But on top of the debt-to-income ratio being high, there are many other things that, are, that farmers are having to face right now. Um, farmland priceless prices have decreased by 0.8%. It's the fourth decline in the last five years. Also, the price of farm goods has not increased with inflation, so farmers are having to spend more to make Mm -hmm. their product, but they're not receiving any more of a return. The other interesting fact is Chapter 12 bankruptcies nationwide have or dropped in 2018, but in the Midwest, they actually rose by 19%, showing that farmers just aren't really doing very well right now. And so one of the challenges with this with with current events are all the tariffs on china and so they might be beneficial beneficial for the steel industry but they're disproportionately affecting farmers so when it comes to tariffs it's put an additional struggle on farmers um because first we had the tariffs with china um, and now there's talk of tariffs against mexico who actually is our number one food and agriculture partner um And farm exports have been forecast to drop by 4.5% this year, mostly due to the collapse of sales to China. Um, And there have been, uh, there was an aid package that was passed recently to try to help financially with the gap that farmers were experiencing. Um, But it only goes towards farmers who are farming certain crops. And the fear is that that will cause farmers to basically produce those crops instead of crops they may have otherwise produced because it's more profitable for them so you end up with an imbalance mm. yes okay it does it say which crops they are uh 
rewarding with the um, I believe it's I know soybeans is one of them okay um, I can't remember what the other ones Soy, are soybeans are pretty important that's like almost in everything in <laughs> like American supermarkets um, another thing that's interesting about trade um, and how that's kind of affected farmers as well is um, the fact that we have so many genetically modified foods so GMOs mm-hmm. um, which I know some people think that sounds really scary but all that means is that it's just an organism whose genetic material has been altered using genetic engineering techniques. It doesn't mean it's poison. It doesn't mean any of those things. Um, but how that's hurt basically trade when it comes to the farmers is because genetically modified foods have not been adopted by... Like foreign countries, right? Yeah. So the European Union and many Asian countries, they aren't allowed to have them there. Mm-hmm. They don't meet their um, nutrition standards. And even countries have kind of turn their nose up to u.s aid when when we are trying to export it out of charitable goods i mean they try to turn that away right yeah so even even countries that were we're trying to help out um, and pr- give them food at a lower cost uh, some of them have been hesitant to accept them because of our use of gmos um, and that has led us to yeah, so that really restricts exportation and it hurts the U.S. agriculture because that's less people who are buying their product. Hmm. So one of the things that, uh, and this might be a little bit off topic, one of the things about importing fruits and vegetables from other countries is that there's a lot of um, organic fraud. And a lot of countries will stamp something as organic and there's no real way to prove that it is or isn't. And that's one of the big issues with importing and exporting Uh, fruits and vegetables in and out of the United States. And one reason that all these different numbers and facts are important is because one, um, like we said, having local farms puts more money in the community and helps make our economy as a whole better. But the other thing that has come to light recently is the increase of suicide among farmers. Suicide among farmers is actually 1.5 times higher than the national average, according to the CDC. And that's actually, they actually have higher rates of suicide than veterans. Dang. They attribute to the fact that since 2013, the net income for U.S. farmers has declined 50%, which is a lot. (laughs) Wow, that is a lot. But there has been a push to help with the mental health of farmers. Um, And actually, FarmAid has actually been one of the big contributors to that. And they have developed a hotline. It is 1-800-FARM-AID. It's a hotline for farmers to call um, and kind of talk about the issues they have going on. Um, they also have mental health providers who can help kind of like talk them through wow. those type of things. That's really important. Um, and the current farm bill that just passed in December 2018 um, by the legislature actually increased funding for that program. Okay. Um, so one thing that kind of uh, we came across as we were going through all this um, was how agriculture and immigration play hand in hand with one another. And one of the things I was always taught growing up was the reason we are able to have cheap produce is because of illegal immigration. So that might be biased. I don't know. You can tell us in the comments uh, and and whatnot on Instagram and Twitter um, where you can find us at Y underscore underscore matters on both of those. Um, But yeah, I, I had always heard that the reason we are able to have cheap produce is because of the illegal immigration unfortunately which which they are underpaid which allows us to have cheap prices for produce because the agriculture industry needs roughly 1.5 to 2 million 
uh, hired workers. Um, and I and currently 50 to 70 percent of our farm labor are actually unauthorized. So they are changing the visa process in the United States to allow farm workers uh, to get a streamlined uh, visa, which is which is an H-2 visa, I believe. Yes, yeah. so the H-2 visa program has existed for a while, and it was the main legal route for farmers to employ foreign laborers, but it was a very arduous process. So mm-hmm. farmers often had to hire lawyers to fill out all the forms because it was so complicated. And you can either have a seasonal visa or a temporary visa, according to uh, Farmers.gov. But even with the visa program, it still has a lot of shortcomings. Um, so even they've streamlined the process, so the wait times to get a worker has been shortened. But since it's only for temporary or seasonal workers, it doesn't really help industries like dairy, which need workers all year round. Okay. Um, the other complaint that many farmers have is that Many of the workers they get are the same workers they've been having come for the last 20 years. And so the question they're asking is, how do we make this more permanent so we can actually have them here and actual residents of our country? As a whole, uh, most Americans feel like they are too good for uh, the farm worker that the picking produces, as you might say. But there is one demographic that is increasing in, in farm work. Is that, isn't that correct? Yeah, so there's actually more female farm workers um, within the last few years. Uh, female workers have actually increased from 17% in 2009 to nearly 24% of the workforce in 2016. And there's different types of uh, the visa. There's like the standard. So the standard visa takes about 75 days. The emergency visa takes less than 75 days. The immediate need for farmers who need workers in 44 days or less and extending workers. Oh, a short-term extension takes less than two weeks to approve. So I'm really curious to see how that compares to other visas in the United States and and what that means as a whole. Well, when the USDA streamlined the process for the H-2 visa in April, um, they said it actually became the most streamlined visa in the entire U.S. government. That's incredible. Um, and was this, was this an initiative from the Trump administration, or was there anyone behind this in particular? Um, I don't know. Okay. Interesting. Um, but one of the things that we came across as well is because so much of the population, because so many of the workers are unauthorized, um, there are multiple studies that talk about how an enforcement-only approach to immigration would be detrimental to the farming industry. So what does that mean? So basically they said if they lost access to all undocumented workers, the agricultural inputs would fall by 30 to $60 billion and food prices would increase 5 to 6%. Interesting. Um, because there's already a farm labor shortage, and that already counts, accounts for nearly $3.3 billion in missed GDP. So after we looked this up, I did a little bit of research in the cost of produce to see how it might affect low-income families and, and whatnot. And what I found from a Massachusetts study was just because produce prices are cheaper does not necessarily mean that Americans are buying more vegetables and fruits for their diets. Uh, although they claim that they are um, from the program SNAP and the EBT cards, they were able to see from the data that 
people did not actually buy more fruits and vegetables. And then the other part of this is even if people were buying uh, lower cost produce, they weren't actually consuming it. So it's very an interesting debate if we get into produce expenses and, and things of that nature. I mean, I know I've been guilty of going to the grocery store and uh, buying way more fruits and vegetables than I needed, <laughs> and uh, half of them go bad, so I understand. <laughs> in contrast to my comments about food prices for produce, spikes in food prices uh, plunges tens of millions of people into poverty, and as a result, riots outbreak and conflicts over scarce resources cost lives. The economics of the community will falter, and instability increases. And so therefore, food security is national security. And this is really only the surface of what's out there. Right. Um, we, we've, I finally had to stop like clicking on links because the rabbit hole just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's so much more we really want to explore. I, to be honest, I think I'll still keep learning about agriculture to some extent, and I certainly have a new respect for it. I know personally... Um, it made me realize how important our local farmers are. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's something I've always known, but it's not really the huge impact that they have on our community. Um, so while the forecast for farmers, especially small and mid-sized farms, um, is not the most, uh, is a little grim, I would say the things that you can do to help with that um, is buying local, which mm -hmm. I've heard for years now, but never really understood the full impact of. Um, so making sure you're buying or trying to buy your fruits and vegetables from your local farmer's market um, or local farmers, if you know them personally, uh, check in with your per local farmers. Like if you know somebody, check in with them, see how they're doing, um, especially with that suicide rate being so high. Um, sometimes just knowing people are there um, can help. So to finish off on some final thoughts, uh, Norman Burlog, if I'm saying that right, he won the 1970 Nobel Peace Prize. Um, he was the father of the Green Revolution, and he is famously quoted for saying, you can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. And um, I think that's a really, really good quote about, about agriculture. And then another final thought is that food security is national security and we can see that in in Sudan and different countries throughout the world and so that's really something to leave how important agriculture is. So that concludes today's episode of Why Agriculture Matters. Um, for more information you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter 